Welcome to another episode of Rad Talk with Tracy. I'm your host, Tracy Poffenroth Prado. This podcast is all about reactive attachment disorder, or RAD. I'm going to be talking with parents who will be sharing their experiences of what it's like raising a child with RAD. It gets raw and it gets real. I'm also going to be talking with experts from different areas who will be sharing information about RAD, resources, and support. I'm glad you're here. Let's get started. My guest today and who I'm talking with is Samuel Christian. Samuel was adopted from a Romanian orphanage in 1997. And during his childhood years, his family went on to adopt 21 children. As a child with RAD, Samuel struggled with having a bond with his family and didn't know what he could do to connect without feeling insecure, scared, and anxious. Over the years, Samuel has learned to overcome this obstacle, and he's looking forward to sharing his story on the show today. And he is also helping out in the world of RAD. And so we're going to talk about that too. Samuel, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And I want to wish you a happy birthday because before the interview, you told me today is your 28th birthday. It is. Yep. Thank you. You're welcome. Are you doing anything to celebrate? Uh, Well, I just finished having breakfast with my mom. So that was fun. Nice. So, and then um, I'm actually my twin sister. I have a twin and my twin sister and I are going to go shopping for our birthday. Fun. Hey, I love shopping. That's always a good thing to do. That's a good birthday present. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do you like shopping? No. No. (laughs) So happy birthday to her. Yeah. (laughs) So let's get started by talking a little bit about the Romanian orphanage. You were adopted. What is that story? How old were you? And talk a little bit about your adoption story. Sure. So um, I was four years old when I was adopted. Um, I was uh, adopted back in January of 1997. And, uh, you know, my parents wanted to reach out and, you know, do more than just help um, inner city kids, because at the time they were running an alternative school for kids that were kicked out of public school and, you know, or just weren't making the grades they were needed to be making. And so, you know, they were they were working a lot with the community kids, but they wanted to take these kids home, but they couldn't. So they looked into, you know, adopting kids, having a family. So we, my, my twin sister, myself and my brother, um, they came across our profile and fell in love with us immediately and knew that we were supposed to be with them. And so I think it was about six to nine months before they could um, finalize everything. And then, you know, we were on a plane headed to Los Angeles and uh, became our, our forever home. Wow. And so how old were your siblings? You said you were four? I was four. So your sister was four because you're twins. And my brother was three. Oh, okay. So all really close in age. And it sounds like your parents were already really involved with kids mm-hmm. and trying yeah. to help out. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. The hard part my mom said was, she would get the kids, but then the kids would go home sometimes to a toxic environment, sometimes to an abusive environment. Sometimes the kids were the ones that were toxic and abusive. She felt like every time she did the groundwork, you know, it would all, you know, fizzle out because the consistency wasn't there. She'd get them, they'd go home. She didn't want that. She said she wanted, she wanted kids to have a consistent, loving, safe environment. So Right. Yeah, that must have been really hard. Mm-hmm. And so were you the first kids for your mom and dad to adopt or had they already started before? No, we were the first. Okay. Wow. And how was that for you? Do you remember much or how was it growing up? I remember a little bit, not a lot, but you know, my parents said that we were very uh, hyper. We were all over the place and that it took both of them to keep us from you know, running rampant and, you know, just going out the door or doing something that was crazy. So um, it took a year for them to settle us down and, you know, get us to the point where we could be, we could manage fine without the 24-7 supervision. I know 
you know, they had to sleep right in front of our bedroom door at one point to keep us from getting up at night and running around the house and stuff. So we were, <laughs> we were definitely, um, <laughs> like I said, we were wild. What were the next couple of years? Like you, you had rad reactive attachment disorder. So talk about the years growing up and, uh, maybe lead into the rad. What was it like growing up? I know you said your family had eventually adopted 21 kids. So I'm imagining other kids are coming in the home and then talk about your rad reactive attachment disorder. Sure. So I would say the best years for me was between 1997 and 2000. Okay. So age four to seven. Yeah. Yeah. In in that area, Um, because it was just the three of us. We did adopt one more Romanian girl, but she had already been adopted into another family in the U.S. and that became a failed adoption. And so we took over that adoption. It was the three of us for two years and then we adopted one more girl. So it was just the four of us really. And, you know, it, we had our moments, but honestly, I felt like we were more of a family then. Okay. A lot of more activities, got to hang out with mom and dad a lot more. So it felt a lot more family-like. And so you felt comfortable. You felt like that was mom and dad and very safe and that was your home. Okay. Yes. Yep. I didn't have any issues with that. But then when we adopted a sibling group of six from Ethiopia, we started having some challenging moments. Um, not at first, I would say the first like six months went pretty good language. The language barrier was an issue. So that was hard communicating with them and trying to understand them. But over the months it got better and they did understand a little English, but they couldn't speak a lot of it. So yeah, that would be challenging. It was. And over the months it got, it got better. But anyways, some of the Ethiopian kids had some behavioral issues. And so that started coming out uh, big time, which when that started coming out, obviously, you know, the rest of us, you know, weren't getting, wasn't getting the attention and, you know, whatever it was that we were getting before. So we started acting out and some of the Ethiopian kids became abusive to some of the Romanian kids in the home. And so that caused more trauma and fear and insecurity. When you talk about behaviors, so I'm imagining now your parents, your mom and dad are having to manage their behaviors. And, you know, you mentioned you're not getting as much attention. Uh, What kind of behaviors? Because it sounds like it's leading into some hurtful things too, harmful things. So there was some, there was definitely some sexual abuse towards the girls. There was some physical abuse towards the boys. They were very controlling over us and almost a bullying type of relationship. If that's what you want to call it. That's big stuff. Right. Big stuff. Right. Well, and they had the upper hand because, you know, they were older and we were younger and they told us they were able to threaten us enough to where we believed them. I'm sorry to interrupt. How old were they? Uh, 12, 13, like 11, 12, 13. We were like seven and eight. Right. So preteen teenagers. Okay. Right. So, um, you know, dealing with a lot of that. And so anyways, mom and dad didn't really get the full scope of what was going on until a few months later. They had to seek out of home intervention and placement for those kids once they found out what was going on but the damage had already been done so the kids left they they went somewhere else but right the damage had already been done okay Mm -hmm. and so how did you work through that as a family uh well (laughs) that you know we're still working through some of that as a family well I became very angry especially after I learned about what happened to some of my siblings. Um, You know, I got some of the verbal abuse and, you know, I just, so I became very angry about all of it. I think my mom did too. Um, I think everyone did. Uh, They were hurt. They were upset. They were angry. My mom, she's a, she, she is, she, well, she was a licensed psychologist and counselor. And so she would try to work with us through those issues. But honestly, I didn't care for that. You know, I just, I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to, you know, open up. And so my anger led to the 
behaviors that I presented, you know, the outbursts and the disrespect and the defiance, but also, you know, a contribution of that contribution of that was the number of kids in my family that kept growing and growing and the lack of attention I felt like I was getting. Um, I didn't feel like it, we were home anymore. I kind of felt like it was all just, I don't know. I, I, at the time, I didn't know how to feel. I just didn't feel like it was a family. So how, how did that work after the, the other siblings from Ethiopia, after they left the house, then it was you and your sister and your brother again for a little while? No. So they actually didn't leave till 2003. So they were 2000, 2003. And by that time we'd adopted another sibling group of four from Ethiopia and Uh, one child from Los Angeles County um, from the hospital, he had a condition and the mother's religious beliefs would not allow her to keep her child, but she didn't want to have an abortion. So um, she placed him up for adoption and, you know, we were the family pick for this child. I see. So after all this had happened, your family was still growing. And so trying to manage what you'd all been through while your parents are also managing a growing family mm-hmm. sounds really difficult. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was difficult. And about that time we were kicked out of our two bedroom house because we were told we can't have that many kids in there. And so we had to search for a house to live in and then we found one. And so we were moving and then obviously with adopting all these other kids, we were constantly going here, going there, doing this, doing that. Is a lot. <laughs> that is a so. lot. You know, you mentioned you were defiant and angry. What did that look like? And and how did you get through that with this growing family and, uh, you know, getting therapy from a parent, even if they're a psychologist? Yeah, that's hard. You don't always want to talk to your parent. Mm-hmm. So what did you do to heal yourself in that? Or did you? I didn't till I left home. I couldn't. Right. Uh, I think... I became very, you know, withdrawn, uh, keeping to myself. I was the kind of person that had blow up kind of rages. So I would bottle it all in for several months and then I would explode, you know, a lot of that type of, a lot of that kind of anger. I would intentionally do things to try to feel tough. So, you know, if I did something wrong, I wouldn't admit to it. I would become very arrogant or try to point the finger or act like I didn't care, you know, stuff like that. So you didn't feel very attached to your parents at this time anymore. Is that right? I felt attached to my dad, Mm. but I didn't feel attached to my mom. So, And why do you think that was? I think because I blamed her for what happened in the home. I blamed her for not having a better eye on things. I blamed her for yeah, kind of just allowing it. I mean, now I know she didn't know, but then I didn't think to ask that. Um, and she might've told me that I can't remember, but I definitely felt like, well, she's home all the time. So why would she allow that type of thing? So she didn't work. She stayed at home with us. So, so she was the primary caregiver for all of you and didn't understand what was really happening. Right. And then you blamed her because she was the one there looking after you. Right. I see. Yeah. So your relationship with your dad was okay. Did you have these behaviors with him? No, I, I was able to keep it together with him. Um, I actually enjoyed being with him. I, I would purposely get in trouble just to spend time with him. Interesting. He, he ran his own business. So the kids that weren't behaving would spend the day at, with him at his business, he would just sit down on the floor or, you know, do some chore or activity or help him out in a print shop, which I liked. So <laughs> I would get in trouble so I wouldn't have to be home. <laughs> I see. I see. That was a way to get time with your dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 21 kids all together. Mm-hmm. Yep. We adopted up until 2008. I think it was our last adoption. After 2000, uh, 2004 was our last international adoption. Um, from then on, all the adoptions we did was in-state and failed adoptions that were in-state. So. I see. When did your mom find out? And when did that healing begin? Uh, she found out in 2003 because 
I finally said something to her. So it was kind of interesting because she had to go run some errands and I never asked to go with her. I never wanted to go with her. I always wanted to stay home. I know that's, but I, I just wanted to stay home. And so anyways, just one day I just decided I'm going to ask if I can go with her. So I did. And she said, yes. And so um, I went with her and then I just kind of started telling her like, I don't know how, how, how the conversation came up. I think she noticed something was off with me and she asked me like, what's going on? You haven't been yourself lately. Um, I kind of feel like, you know, you were happier and I just kind of feel like, you know, you seem very depressed a lot now. And so I think she kind of worked uh, her way into the situation. And I finally just spilled the beans and told her what was going on with me at this point. I didn't know about any of the other stuff that was going on, just about what was going on with me. And that's when like she, she went back home and she called my dad from work and they had a big old house meeting and they, they had like their little investigation and then they found out everything that was going on. And she was like, well, that's that, like that, that can't continue happening. So. And how did it feel sharing that with her? I was scared. I told her, I told her, I was like, I was told if I said anything that, you know, they would, they would, um, they would hurt me really, really bad. And she was like trying to assure me, no, that's not going to happen. Don't worry. We're going to keep you safe. But I mean, I'd already been abused up to this point. So I'm like, I'd rather not be in the same house. So, you know, she was like, well, we're going to have them in separate rooms. And they kept it that way till they got out of home placement. So I see. Did you feel relieved after sharing that with your mom and that she was going to do something? Or were you still, it sounds like you were still a bit worried, didn't trust that they could take care of you yet because of the threats. I didn't feel relieved until my dad told us he was taking the kids and moving out of the home. Mm-hmm. So and then I felt relieved. Good. And did your relationship ever improve after that with your mom? Well, it has now, but not when I was growing up in the home. Right. So, yeah. We, I, I left home when I was 17 and I went through a teen challenge program. And that's when I was able to work through all my trauma and my issues and my behaviors. And my mom and I, my mom and I didn't start having a, a relationship again until 2017 though. So I left home to 2012 and it wasn't until 2017 that I like, we began to work on a relationship again. So. I see. And we'll talk about that. I wanted to ask what your relationship was like with your siblings, your mm-hmm. twin sister and your brother during that. Did you feel you had a connection with them as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we stayed pretty close throughout the entire time. And we still are today. Honestly, <laughs> this is going to sound terrible. But honestly, I would say they're the the other two that I have like a really close relationship with. I don't really have a relationship with anybody else. We kind of all went our own ways. <laughs> that was that. So, You mean with the rest of your other siblings in the household, the other adopted kiddos and... And then your parents, it sounds like that's pretty recent that you've been working through with your mom anyway. Did you Mm -hmm. stay in connection with your dad after you moved out and you went through your program? Was he always in the picture? Yeah, he drove me to my program and I talked to him every week um, whenever I was allowed phone calls and he came and visited me. But I told my dad that I wasn't ready to, to have a relationship with my mom yet. So he didn't force it and she didn't push it and I mean, she sent me like letters and, you know, stuff like that. And I did write letters home to the family, not specifically to her, but, you know, she did stay in contact, but she didn't push the relationship part of it. So Right. And did that, did that matter to you that she was writing letters to you? Did it, was it meaningful or was it just a. No, it was. I mean, I was actually surprised that I was getting letters because my mom and I, by the time I left, we were at each other's throats. Mm-hmm. Like it was bad. So I was actually surprised that she was sending letters and, and, and whatnot. And so it had meaning to me. I think what meant more was that fact that she wasn't pushing, pushing to like for a relationship with me. And I, I respected that she respected my wishes. So. Gotcha. Cause that would have been way too much at that time. You weren't looking for that. Mm-hmm. Right. It sounds like you had a lot of healing to do a lot of work to do before you could take that on. Now, Samuel, were you ever given a formal diagnosis of reactive attachment disorder, or is this something you felt you had? Did they figure things out? What happened when you were at that program when you were 17? No, I was given a formal diagnosis of reactive attachment, but I've always, I didn't know that's what it was called. 
at the time, but I knew, I knew something was off with me. I knew I was struggling. I didn't know why, but I knew I felt different. I felt, I felt very insecure and I felt very much like if I wasn't in the know how, if I didn't, if I wasn't in control, if I felt left out of something that, you know, I felt like suspicious things were going on and I had to, I had to figure things out before they did or I had to regain control or, or whatever the situation was. Never that way with my dad though. I didn't feel that way at all with my dad, but definitely with my mom and definitely after everything that went down, you know, I definitely felt that way a lot. So. Gotcha. And do you have relate, did you, or do you have relationships with friends and people outside of your home either during that time or now how is forming relationships with other people for you? Now I do. Back at the time, we no, we didn't really have a lot of friends. We weren't really given the opportunity to. And I think a lot of that was due to part of the behaviors from everybody in the home, not just mine, but everyone's combined. And my mom just wasn't wanting to bring outsiders in and deal with that on top of us. So, And outsiders, you mean like other therapists or other people to come in and help or? Therapists church people, uh, friends, you know, our friends are definitely held, you know, at a, at a distance type of thing. Gotcha. So your mom was really the one who took on everything, not just raising the kiddos at home when your dad's at work, but also trying to work through all the behaviors. Right. Wow. I mean, I feel like I can't even imagine what your mom <laughs> went through either. Exactly. In my program, when I was in my program, I was able to start understanding the concept that she had a lot on her shoulders as well. Cause I, I never really thought of it that way. You know, I was more self-centered and thought about my, my issues and poor me, but you know, I was, I was able to open my eyes a little bit to, Oh wow. Yeah. She did have, you know, a ton of responsibilities and she was constantly dealing with us and she was constantly dealing with the state and she was constantly trying to, you know, keep things going on our end. So it kind of made me understand, Oh, I'm, I'm beginning to understand where my mom's frustrations are coming from. I mean, like, like any mom, she tried, but she wasn't perfect. And she had her moments and, you know, she, she said and did things that I'm sure she regretted, but, you know, it just gave me more of an understanding of when she had those moments, why she had those moments. So. Right. And your mom was highly motivated. It sounds like to take care of kids that were struggling Struggling kids, special needs kids, kids that, you know, people would normally, you know, would be like, you know, throwaway type of kids or never amount to anything type of kids. That's where her heart was. Right. So she's trying to manage all these behaviors while trying to take care of everybody and take care of more and more kids. (laughs) Right. So you say you and your mom have a relationship now. How did that come about? What did you, how did you start working on that? And how did that evolve? I actually didn't do anything. <laughs> um, she called me for my birthday back in 2016. Okay. She said something about, she called to wish me a happy birthday. And I, we were talking for a little bit. And um, I was sharing with her about working at a program. I, at the time, I was working for another program and sharing with her how things were going and how I kind of was beginning to understand her a little bit and taking care of a lot of kids and with behaviors and trying to manage them and keep them from, you know, throwing fits and all this stuff. So we were able to relate on something finally. Right. Cause you were experiencing it now from that perspective. I see. Yeah. And so um, I don't know why I asked her, but I asked her, if she wanted to come up and visit and she was like, um, you know, I can't because of the kids at home and I'm, I'm just super busy and you know, all, all this stuff that comes with it. And I was like, okay, well, no problem. Maybe, maybe, you know, one of these days. And then I hung up. Well, then, you know, a few days later, dad, my dad calls me back and says, Hey, your mom wanted me to call and tell you that she, um, she's, she's planning on coming up there. And so it's like, <laughs> she told me she wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, she talked to me about it and I told her she needed to go. Um, and she needed to at least, you know, visit you and see what Montana was like and and just kind of, you know, um, get some time for herself because she never has that. So I said, OK, all right. So when is she coming? And he was like, oh, she's coming on Thursday or whatever. And that was like, you know, three or four days away. And I was like, wow, you guys do things fast. But OK, <laughs> um, I'll get things lined up and 
I look forward to seeing her. So she came up and we visited and that was probably the first time we had a visit in a long time. Uh, I saw her once in 2014 because my dad was helping me move to Montana from Missouri and he had, we had to go through LA and then come up, uh, you know, interstate five to Washington because the, there was uh, bad road conditions everywhere. So we're trying to stay away from the snow. So he made a quick stop at his business in LA and, you know, we went and had breakfast I, at that time. I still wasn't ready. So, you know, it was, it, we were nice to each other, but you know, I wasn't really reaching out. Right. So besides that, I hadn't really seen her or talked to her. It was probably our first visit that was real and that was good. And, and, um, kind of the icebreaker, just planting the seed for maybe more visits. Oh yeah, it was an icebreaker because two months later she was asking about moving up here. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah, I was like, wow, so you're gonna move up here now. <laughs> I love Montana, she said. And I want to be with you. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, that's really nice. How did that feel to hear? Well, um, I wasn't I wasn't sure. I was nervous. You know, I didn't know if that's what I wanted. You know, I just I didn't know how it was gonna turn out. So I prayed about it for a while and and then I felt like, you know, because I decided, I decided back in 2013 that I was going to put my relationship with my with with my mom in God's hands and in His timing, that we would we would you know reconcile. So I just really felt like this was the time, um, and so I said, well, you know, whether I feel nervous about this or not, you know, I feel like this is the time that I'm supposed to do this. This is the next step to healing. So I called my mom and I said, Mom, if you move up here. When we drive, when, when we're driving through the street, streets, or you see me, we're waving at each other, and you're not ignoring me. Number one, and number two, you know we're gonna we're gonna work on you know our relationship. And there's a lot of things from the past that I want to open up and talk to you about. But you know I want to be transparent and honest. But I don't want any offended feelings. I don't want I don't want you being hurt. I don't want me being hurt. It's in the past, and we've moved on. But you know I still feel like we can we can talk about it and move forward. And she was all for it. So. That's great. You know, part of me wonders what was the drive for your mom to continue adopting, knowing that it was so hard and such a struggle and that some of the other kids were hurting. And again, I don't have the whole story. And so I wonder just from your perspective, do you have any resentment or did that ever come up in your discussions with her about what was her motivation? And I know she's not here to answer that. So just from your perspective, um, you know, that's the question that is as I listen to you, it's in my head all the time. So I just wanted to be open and ask. I just wonder about that. My mom and dad both, you know, there's a verse in the Bible that talks about, you know, going into all the nations and preaching the gospel. And so they, um, they, and they felt like that ministry for them was bringing the nations home to them. I see. Um, and so they wanted to present the gospel. They wanted to give a loving home. And my mom, my mom was not oblivious to rads. She wasn't oblivious to the trauma. She wasn't, she knew all about that. She studied up before she adopted us. I mean, she knew what she was getting herself into. So it wasn't, she was like, Oh my gosh, I didn't know. Like she knew, but you know, she just, you know, I don't think she imagined it would be to that extent. Right. I don't think you can prepare even when you do know. I mean, that sounds right. Fantastic. She was already a psychologist or psychiatrist and yeah. uh, able and very aware. And that just, you're right. That's such a good point is that no matter how much you prepare, you still don't know what it is going to be like, or you don't know how impactful right. it's going to be. Yeah. Very true. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. So that was their, like I said, that was their motivation. That's why they did what they did. It was, it was a ministry for them. It was their ministry um, that they felt like this is what they're supposed to do. As far as my feelings about it, you know, I feel like God's still working with me on that one. I've resented it a lot. Um, I wasn't, especially as a young adult, I just really was like, and I told my mom, you know, there are days that I wish that we never adopted more kids at all, um, because of what happened. But then my mom would always remind me, yeah, but, um, you know, you wouldn't be where you're at today if you hadn't experienced that. And so we may not like how things turn out, but, you know, 
they always are there to strengthen us and grow us and better us. And, you know, you're able to reach out and be that voice of hope to so many families um, and even myself included because, you know, of, of your, of, of, of where you've been and where you're at now. So, yeah. Right. That's very true. Our experiences do make us who we are. Mm-hmm. And you're doing a lot with your experience. Let's talk about that. I'm glad that you have um, and continue to work on a, a relationship with your mom that's really hopeful. And uh, I hope it continues to grow for you. It sounds like it will. Did she move to Montana? <laughs> she did. She moved in 2017 and um, she was up here. She's been up here ever since. Um, she's still got five kids at home. And so she's still um, getting them through school and, you know, she's trying to be strong. And I'm like, mom, be careful with yourself, (laughs) you know, don't hurt yourself and and whatever. But, you know, she's, she likes to, she likes to present well and she does a good job at it. So, but I know, I know that, you know, she's my mom. So I know. So I'm like, mom, please be careful. Don't overdo it. Don't do this. Don't do that. And she's like, you you boys, you got to stop. You got to stop worrying about me. And we're like, no, we won't. (laughs) Did you ever think you'd be at a point where you were worrying about your mom in this way? No, I didn't think so. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's 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 awesome. And don't get me wrong, like mom, my mom and I have you know butted heads and did, had disagreements and stuff. But you know, we get through it. We always work through it. Now, you know, we've 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 been able to like a few months ago, we ha- we uh, had a big disagreement about an issue and I was, <laughs> I was feeling hurt. She was feeling hurt. And so we were both just kind of at a place of like, Oh man, this is, this isn't pretty, but you know, we, we, we took, we, uh, we both took some space and thought and prayed and then we came back and, you know, we, we moved forward. So. That is such good news. That's a happy thing to hear. And I love that you, it sounds like, you didn't even know if you were ready or not, but something in you initiated that meeting with your mom and, or the offer to come up and visit. And then from there, you just allowed it to, you know, just go with the flow and see what happened and work at it. And it sounds like you're both putting in effort and uh, that's incredible after everything that you've both been through. Mm -hmm. Going back to how the experiences make us, what are you doing in the world of rad, how did you take your experience and, and apply that now to your life today? Right. Well, um, when I left, uh, when I left my program, I felt like I was called to work with hurting kids. And so I started working for some other programs and just wasn't really feeling fulfilled. Wasn't feeling like this is what I've envisioned and what I was looking for, what I was wanting. What kind of programs were those? When you say you're working with hurting kids and programs, what type of programs? Well, one program specifically focused on, uh, you know, kids with FASD and reactive attachment disorder. Um, But I did not like their approach. I did not like, you know, the way they, I guess, what, what they presented for their program. I just didn't feel like it was loving. I felt like it only encouraged the detachment even further. And I, I, I didn't like that. I always believe that there's healing and that families, you know, can be restored with the right amount of time and attention. And then the other place, you know, didn't really work with rad kids. They had some, but they were more behavioral issues, and, you know, kids with oppositional defiance. They were more um, consequence driven. <laughs> and I was just like, consequences for me growing up only made me even more angry. So I don't know how that's working, but, you know, cause you hear those like boot camp and military style schools to get your son straight or whatever, or daughter. And I'm like I, that, if anything, that only furthers the anger or trauma. So I wasn't really a huge fan of that either. I, uh, I went ahead and, you know, I started a, I started a boys home ministry, um, back in 2018 and I was open for about a year and a half and, you know, we were getting kids and things were going good. I didn't feel like I was equipped and ready, um, to continue on, uh, with, with caring for the kids. I felt like I needed a little bit more, uh, training under my belt. So I went ahead and closed that program down sent kids home. I moved to Florida actually into, uh, in the beginning of 2020 and um, I became a residential director at a facility in Florida. It was a great program, probably one of these best programs I've ever worked for. 
uh, very therapeutic, very understanding to kids with RADS and, you know, understanding to families. And through them, you know, I was able to learn uh, what I was feel like, what I felt like I was missing. I was able to, you know, help their program thrive and succeed and do well. After I would say, I was probably there for about eight or nine months, an opportunity became available with a friend of mine back in Montana that was a, he's a youth pastor and has been working with troubled kids uh, for 15 years. And he reached out to me, I wanted to know uh, if I wanted to partner with him in starting a, a Christian boarding school together. And so I prayed about it and I, I felt like this was, this was the time and, and this is what I was supposed to do. So moved back up here in, in November and started working with him and, and getting things together and set up and, and doing what we needed to do and, and get ready to, to launch. And here we are today. And here you are. And so it sounds like you spent a lot of time working in different programs, trying to figure out what modality worked for you or felt right for you. You got your training and uh, kept doing that until it felt right to open up another place again. And what luck, somebody came along with the same vision and mm-hmm. you're back in Montana. And so now the facility that you and this pastor run is called Mountain State Therapeutic Services. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. It's it's at a, a place where the kids live full time. Mm-hmm. So we work with boys ages eight to 13 years old. We do a lot of in-house counseling. We have group meetings where we, you know, we discuss with the boys, you know, we try to help them understand what triggers them, how, how they can avoid being triggered by that. How can, how can they respond to a situation that they may um, not know how to respond? You know, their way of responding would be, you know, outbursts of anger, defiance or disrespect. Well, how can we work on that uh, so that, you know, you're not reacting in in that type of way. You're communicating uh, with your adults. Um, so we, we try to use the TBRI, um, you know, method here with, with the boys. And what is the TBRI method? The trust-based relational intervention. Thank you. Yeah. The facility in Florida used that um, approach and I loved it. Um, the facilities I used were, I, I had that were up here in Montana did not use that approach. I see. And I, I, like I said, I, I didn't, I wasn't happy with, with their approaches, but I was, I was very happy with TBRI. It's all about trust. It's all about reduce. It's all about communication. It's all about getting the kid to not be afraid and not to fear, to be able to know that they have their own voice and they can speak. They can, they can share what they're thinking. They can share how they're feeling, you know, but then they, then we work together and finding a compromise is that you are going to wash the dishes or, you know, is that going to be, you know, well, I'll, I'll wash dishes with you or, you know, whatever the case may be. For example, one of the kids doesn't like to be by himself. He doesn't like playing by himself. And that's probably due to trauma in the past when he was left alone or, or, or whatever may have happened. So he, whenever he feels left out, he begins to attention seek. So we're working with him on how can you be okay with playing by yourself and playing with other kids because there's going to be times in life where you're going to have to be by yourself you're not always going to have people with you how can you feel accepted how can you feel loved so he shared with us i feel left out whenever blah 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 so now while we're trying to get him comfortable and with being by himself at times because it's going to happen we'll take him and be like okay we got to run errands so you'll go with us or you know we'll we'll play a board game with him or, or we'll do something to try to meet the need not just, you know, not just try to get him to a place where he's, he, he can react and respond appropriately if he's, if he's left by himself to play, but also meet the need if, if, if he's looking for, for that attention and like telling him, come to us when you feel alone, I'm feeling alone and I'm feeling frustrated. What can I do? You know? Okay. Well, let's talk about the different things you can do, you know? So, and he's, and you know, he's making progress in that. And, you know, it's just about, patience and the communication and some kids move forward sooner some kids don't you just you keep at it and you keep going and so yeah and so that sounds like you saw a lot of progress in the kids in florida and you're seeing this model work for your kiddos 
at the facility that you're helping to run now. That, that was a great example. Thank you. Now, mm-hmm. are most of the kids that were, or some or most of the kids that were in Florida using this model are the ones that you see, is it a mix of different issues or are they all kids with reactive attachment disorder? Um, most of them are reactive attachment disorder, but you know, reactive attachment disorder is all over the scale. Right. You know, on a scale of one to 10, you can have someone out of one and you can have someone out of 15. Right. <laughs> yes. And I, and I saw both, but here's the thing, whether they're out of one or 15, once the kid understood and knew that they could trust you, no matter what they did, you were going to be there for them. You had their respect. And so, you know, I came in as res- residential director. And so I had to, I had to get the boys trust. What do the boys want? They want to know that you're going to be consistent. They want to know that, you know, in the heat of things, you have everything under control. They want to know, you know, that, you know, when they're angry and upset, you can keep them safe. You know, you're going to be able to help them, you know, come back down and, you know, um, you know, you're going to be able to give them coping skills and things to help them, you know, calm down. And what are they going to do to make sure all this, this, these are all the things you can do. They're going to act out so that, they can push your buttons and see, can you handle us? Can, can we trust you? Are we going to feel safe with you? You know, are we going to be, are we going to know that at the end of the day, when Mr. Sam comes into the room, we're okay. And so I would come into a room with a kid yelling and screaming and raging. And I would just look at him and go, Hey, let's go. And they would get up and we would walk. You know, I had a kid refusing to get down out of a tree. Um, and everybody was like, he won't listen. He won't do this. He won't do that. And I had gone to run an errand. I come back and I look at the kid and I'm like, come on, just get down out of that tree. Let's go. You know, like joking around with him. Um, and he'd be like, okay. And he would come down out of the tree, you know? So it's, it's, it's about them knowing that they can trust you no matter what, you know, these kids know that they can throw whatever they want to throw at me. I've been spit on. I've been hit. I've been, I've been everything you can imagine. And I don't react. And I tell them that does not phase me. You go ahead and do what you feel like you got to do. I'm going to keep you safe. If I have to, you know, if I, if I have to hold you, if I have to do whatever I have to do to keep you safe, I'm going to do it. But at the end of the day, you do not phase me. And they're looking to get to you personally and hurt you personally. And that's what they want to do. And when they see that, uh, we're not, we're not going to get there with Mr. Sam, Mr. Sam, no matter what we say or do, he's going to hold his ground and he's going to care for us. Then usually um, it stops. And do you see yourself in some of these kids or do you see yourself growing up and experiencing the same thing? Do you see in them what was going on with you growing up? Well, that, that, that's what makes it hard is because I do and because I understand and I know, and some kids I do attach with, and while I have a professional boundary with them and I make sure, you know, I want the kids to know that I attach to them. You know, I do. uh, One of the places I worked at said, you don't want them knowing. And I'm like, why? But I want them to know that I attach to them because I think the other facility I worked at was like, well, if they know that you attach them, then they know they can hurt you. Yes. Okay. So they know they can hurt me good but they also need to know that i can stand there and i can take it and i can still love on them at the end of the day and so you know whenever i have a kid raging i tell them you know what you're raging right now because you're hurt you're not mad at me you're hurt and you know this is how this is your way of communicating so why don't you finish whatever you got to do of your finish and then let's talk about this and let's see how we can move forward. And, you know, some of the stories that the kids tell you of their past and all that stuff, it's heartbreaking and stuff, but I always go back to, you know what, that can be your testimony now, you know, instead of letting that continue to hurt you, make it your testimony and, you know, move forward. And, and, you know, these kids, I've been asked by these kids, like, how did you do it? And, you know, you know, how, how are you able to not, you know, how can you trust and, and, and how can you be successful? And, your family? And how do you know that mom and dad really do love you? And, and all sorts of questions. And one kid asked me, I don't want, I don't want to be hurt. And I said, I can't promise that you, there will always be a time there, there. There's always, there's always the possibility of you getting hurt backstabbed. If you know at the end of the day, that no matter what, that you're going to be okay and that you keep your focus on you and how successful you want to be 
and where you want to go in life, nobody can take that away from you. So get up and keep going. Well, it sounds like you are doing incredible work with these kids. And do you ever work with families or what does life look like for these kids? So they're eight to 12. Do they return back home or do they go to other programs like independent living or foster families? What, what is the plan or the hope for these kids after they've spent time with you? So my goal um, is to have these kids go home. (laughs) That's what I want. That's what I want to see. So we actually are going to be providing three parent workshops a year. And so the parents come up three times a year and, you know, yeah. So we encourage the families to come up, but if, you know, for their health and safety, if they need to do it online, then we'll, we will be providing that as well. But, you know, we provide family workshops to not only focus on the family, but focus on the kid. How can they take what the kids have learned here and take it home? How can the parents respond and react differently? Um, you know, you got to remember you're raising special needs kids. At the end of the day, these are special needs kids. And the way you would parent maybe, you know, a biological child may not be the same way you would parent an adopted child, someone with trauma. It's not going to be the same. And then aside from this facility that you're helping to run, your past, before you even got started with this, you also help families uh, find placements. Is that right? And are you still doing that as well? Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I have families reach out to me um, looking for help that, you know, find, find financially, you know, it, a lot of times these families can't afford the help. And so I, I have, you know, quite a bit of resources that I found over the years in, in, in doing this and, you know, a list of programs like right here, you know, I was helping a mom the other day and, you know, I wrote down a list of programs that were low cost and might be beneficial for her. And, you know, you know, let her call all these places and decide what, what would be best. But, you know, she tells me what she's looking for, what her criteria is. And then I do my best to try to find the the right fit for them. Not just any place. Like I want to make sure that the child's actually going to get the help that they need. It's, it's not a holding facility. It's, you know, no child wants to, no child should ever have to be sent away from home, but if it comes to that, let's get them home as quick as we can. Let's get them home. That's my vision. That's my goal. And it maybe maybe the child's too old, like he's 16, 17. Well, maybe he's not going home, but he can still have a relationship with his family. You know, he can still heal. So it sounds like your ideal goal is for them to go home, but mm-hmm. you also recognize that it may not be suitable for everybody. And I, you've got this Mountain State Therapeutic Services. That's the school that you run. You've got eight kids and it's full, but your goal is to bump it up to 12 kids. You're hoping to expand a little bit mm-hmm. soon. and. Uh, and then you also are still helping families and you're working with them, really thinking about their kid and and trying to find the right placement for them. So kind of tailoring it to whatever they need and then trying to find that place for them. You can be located at www.christianboysranch.com. So if families want to get in touch about your therapeutic program, they can contact you there. Can they also reach you just about that other help that they might need if they don't necessarily want to use that therapeutic program, but they want to utilize you to help them find the right placement for their child? They would, you know, just, I have an email link on a phone number on my website. They can email or call me and either way, you know, whatever they're looking for, you know, we're more than just, we're more than just a, a, bo- a boarding program. You know, like I said, we want to be able to reach out and help families as best we can. And, you know, sometimes that looks like, you know, a lot of times that may be referring them on to, you know, other help. And that's what it's all about networking and helping these families. So that is so true. Samuel, so true. Is there anything else you want to add about your experience or what you're doing or anything that I might have left out that you feel you would like parents to know? Oh, you know, my one question I ask this, I try and ask this whenever I'm talking to someone who experienced RAD themselves, reactive attachment disorder. What was it for you that, because now today you would say that you don't have reactive attachment disorder, that you're healed from it. Mostly you might still have some behaviors, but what was it that helped you change to be able to get through that and be able to trust? Like your kids are noticing you can be on your own. You can trust, you can form relationships. You're not afraid anymore. My personal you know, journey was my relationship with God and just really realizing for myself personally 
that you probably will get hurt through life. It's it's probably going to happen, but don't let it affect you and don't let it define you. What what I look at it as is you just keep moving forward and, you know, you only have your time on earth. And I want to use it to the best of my ability. I don't want to waste it being angry. I don't want to waste it pushing people away. I want to live life as best as I can. Was it a choice for you? Is there a defining moment maybe when you were at the school or in your life too, where you actually realized, hey, this is a choice for me to can either continue with these behaviors and be angry and defiant and not trust. Was there a defining moment that helped you leap into that and then find your faith? And would you say for other kids, I'm not saying everybody can make the choice, but that, you know, depending where they are in their healing is it eventually a choice? It is a choice. I have a brother who is 21 years old and like, I love him. And, you know, I was one of the only ones that spoke up to take him to, to adopt him, believe it or not, like of all the, of all the adoptions that we did, he was one of the only ones that I was like, I really felt like we needed to take him in, (laughs) you know, he struggled and he struggled and he struggled and he still struggles and he's a young adult now. And, he still hasn't made that choice. He's angry. He's bitter. He's hurt. And he hasn't come to that place of, you know what? I, I want to move past this. I'm done with this. I'm ready to work. I'm ready to work on my trauma and I'm ready to, to move forward. And so, you know, while I love and care for him, I also know it has to be in his timing. For me personally, when I knew I was acting up in my program and the director told me uh, very bluntly, Sam, this is your last hope. If you don't get it together, you will be homeless. And I knew I was. I knew that if, if I got kicked out of this program, that was it. And it just really clicked at that moment that I can't screw around anymore. If I'm going to succeed and do well, I have to get to work. I have, I have to get to work. And I did, not, I did not want to become another statistic. And so I got to work. Well, thank you so much for sharing so much of your story. You can reach Samuel at www.christianboysranch.com. You can either learn about his therapeutic program that they're offering in Montana, or you can also contact him just to help find support to find placement or other therapeutic programs that your kiddos might need. If you're not sure what to do, he's a good, a good person to reach out to. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I hope you'll be back to listen to future episodes. If you like the show, please subscribe and help me spread the word by clicking share and like. If you're a parent who needs more support, whether it's for you or your family, please check out my website at radtalkwithtracy.com and visit radadvocates.org.